belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The name of the message for February 6, 2022 is called, God Will Provide, But How? The speaker is John Ray, and the location is Miller Lodge, Mount Sequoia, in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Well, good morning, everybody. Again, my name is John Ray. Welcome to Grace Church. So the road suddenly dropped off into what looked like a dried-up riverbed. It was maybe 50 yards across to where the road picked up again. But this riverbed was full of huge boulders. I mean, tar-sized rocks. And they all funneled down this narrow chute in the mountains. There was no bridge to the road on the other side, not even a path through. At first glance, it defied logic. Then you looked upstream in this field of boulders, and you saw the church tower sticking up out of this mangle of rocks. You looked a little bit closer, you could see one or two rooftops jutting out. And after a while, it began to settle on you what you were seeing is that there had been an entire town in this valley. That this wasn't a normal riverbed, this was the effects of a tsunami of rocks and landslide that had come through and wiped out the town. Now, of course, we knew it was devastated. I'd been on this group that was going to provide relief supplies up. This was a mountain, the mountains of Honduras after Hurricane Mitch. And we knew what we were going to. We drove through the UN-sponsored refugee camp where the survivors of the village had gathered as we got to the road. But still, seeing it took a whole other level of belief to actually comprehend that what I was looking at, this, this incredible landslide it caused, there had once been a town there. And as we did this, the truck full of relief supplies that we had driven up with started to feel very inadequate. Not just inadequate, but almost insulting that we had driven all this way with what felt like a lot of supplies when we were packing them together. When we actually got there, we realized it was totally insufficient for the tax. We're going to look at a text today, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And I, I felt that, that memory came back to me as I was reading this text, as I was thinking of how often in our lives we are called to follow Jesus, we're called to, in obedience, move out and help others. But then when we encounter the situation, we realize that I do not have enough with me. I do not have enough in me. It may be, it may be very individual. It may be called to come alongside <coughs> a person who is suffering to help them, and you realize the enormity of what this person is suffering, 
is utterly overwhelming to your capacity with that. But I want us to, to feel that a bit as we get into the text this morning. So we're looking at Luke 9. We're going to look at this version of it, Luke 9. I'm going to read the text, and then as we're doing with these, <coughs> um, with these texts, I'm going to give the John Ray paraphrase of it as we go. So, starting in verse 10. When the apostles returned, they told Jesus everything they had done. So where were they coming back from? They were coming back from one of the first times where Jesus sends them out to proclaim the gospel. So they had gone out without Jesus, had done miracles, says, and they were coming back plump. They were excited about all that they had been able to accomplish. And they came back and were telling Jesus. Then he took them with him and they were driven privately to a town called Bethsaida. But when the crowds found out, they followed him. He welcomed them, spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to draw to a close, and the twelve came and said to Jesus, Send the crowd away, so that they can go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and food, because we are in an isolated place. But he said to them, You give them something. They replied, we have no more than five loaves and two fishes, unless we go and buy food for all these people. Now there were about 5,000 men there. Then he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So they did as Jesus directed, and the people all sat down. Then he took the love, five loaves and two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. He gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. So what I want us to see here as we look at this is that having faith in God, having faith that God will provide, is much more challenging than we may at first realize. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to trust that God will provide, and in the same way be realistic about the need, about what we are facing? and about the limits of our own resources. When we ask those questions, as I kind of thought about this and, and paraphrased this text this way, when the 12 disciples returned that Jesus had sent out as messengers of the good news, they all told their stories of what happened to them. After that, they all headed away from the crowds towards the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds weren't thrown off the scent so easily and followed them wherever they went. So Jesus accepted the situation, talked with them all about the kingdom of God, and, sit, and spent some time healing those who needed it. It was getting dark when, the, when Jesus' disciples interrupted. Jesus said, uh, um, Jesus, it's going to take a while for all these places to find, for all these people to find a place to eat and to sleep. Don't you think you need to tell them to move on before it gets too late? Don't know if you know this, but there ain't much around here. Instead of agreeing with them, Jesus said, y'all, the disciples gathered up with the brought, a meager five loaves of bread and a couple fish, told Jesus this was all they had. The closest place to get more wasn't close enough. Anyway, since there was such a great number, there was no way they could provide for them, even if they could find a place to buy enough. Jesus told his followers to have everyone find a place to stretch out on the ground in groups of about 50. The crowd spread out. Jesus took the little pile of food the disciples had brought, turned his face up to the sky, said thanks, and started digging out the pieces. 
He'd fill a basket for a disciple to take to a group, and then another, and then another, and then another. The baskets just kept filling. Each group had more than enough, so much that the leftovers filled 12 baskets. Now again, I want us to feel the weight, because this is a familiar story of really what's going on here. So we're going to sit here and eat lunch afterwards. But if I came up and I said, hey, for everybody in here, I want you to feed this group today. Here you go. I want you to use that. And, and make sure everybody's got enough to eat. Right? <laughs> like that'd be a pretty, pretty tough job, right? With that. But we're so familiar with this story. We're so used to thinking in terms of a flannel graph or a Sunday school lesson. Sometimes we, I think we miss that angst that the disciples must have felt. Especially after just coming back from this great mission where they went out and they, they were actually healing people. They were doing things, right? They were, they were seeing miracles. But now this one was a whole different level of that. If we were to take, if we were to collate all the words that were written about this story in the Bible, it fills about 2,000 words in 100 verses. We need to know that is a lot of biblical real estate. That this story, in one version or another, it occurs in all four Gospels, and it occurs six times in total. Now, to put that in perspective, the resurrection was only talked about three times. The feeding of the masses is done six times. It's the single most talked about miracle in all of the Bible. There are more words written about this miracle than any other miracle. So we have to, as, as we look at the text, as we analyze the text, we really have to stop and go, okay, well, why was this so important to the biblical authors? Why was this so significant that they, significant, that they would take this precious real estate of the word and spend so much of it on this story? Well, theologians have um, wondered that maybe in this telling that the authors were trying to draw a direct link to the original audience between Moses and Jesus. This is a man in the wilderness story. This is a, this is a Jesus version retelling of Moses providing for the people of Israel with manna from heaven, something that wasn't available. It was in the wilderness. It was miraculously provided. So some authors think like that. But then in the New Testament church, we don't see, we come into places where we need to be, and because we don't meet in a cathedral, because we don't meet in a chapel that is full of religious art, we, we don't understand that the image of the feeding of the loaves and the fishes was one of the most predominant motives of early church art. In the learning guide this week, we've connected an article about how they found, archaeologists have found this floor of a chapel that sits near where the town of that city was, that it has this incredible um, 
What's the word? What's the inlay? Mosaic. Yes, mosaic. Has a mosaic of the feeding of the five thousand with it, and you see it in religious uh, iconography all through the early church in particular. So the early church got it. They got that this was important. They they get it, but they took it away maybe from the idea of Jesus as Moses as Jesus being the one who feeds. Remember communion. What a significant communion was the center of early church worship, gathering around the table. As we talk about this, starting off this year, why tables are so significant, we see that in the early church, the gathering around for feeding, for food, was central to worship. And so the early church understood this story as, as a way that Jesus was expressing his provision, God's provision for the church. With that, well, let's let's ask this: What is Jesus doing here? If the if the early church, the earliest church, the or the biblical authors saw Jesus is is in a way presenting himself as Moses, as the early church said, okay, well, this is Jesus' way of presenting himself as the bread of life, as provision, as the center place place of gathering. What is what is Jesus then saying? To how are we to interpret this now? Because honestly, I don't know anybody in this room, I don't know anybody who's watching this, who is necessarily at least physically in a place where you need food to fall from the sky. And that's what man loves. I mean, yeah, we could all be better, right? We could all get something more. But in our context, for us, now I'm not saying the global church, I'm not saying we're not talking about the world, I'm just talking about us. Most of us, we may not get to eat exactly what we want, but we get to eat. The other thing is with our worship, we become so individualized, so consumer-oriented. That most of our meals are really just kind of, they're not necessarily worship. It's not a, it's not an act of worship or a or something of that nature. It's more just a commodity that we use to satisfy preference with us. Now we may pay a lot of attention to it for our physical abilities and for training and some kind of athletic ability or something like that. But for the most part, it's not. We see it as just as a commodity with that. It's not something like that. So what is Jesus saying to us here? Well, I think as we put ourselves back in this place of understanding that counter to the prevalent message of evangelical fundamentalism, it's not about just going to heaven where we die. That following Jesus is not just some kind of mental transformation that we assent to a set of beliefs and therefore we escape a bad outcome after we're dead. But that following Jesus is a task of transformation, not only of us, but of a, a community of people for the transformation of the world. That we are called into a followership. 
that transforms us to be transformed as a group that then transforms the world. Now, this does all those other things. I'm not, I, don't, I want to be careful here that I'm not diminishing necessarily the other message, but I'm saying that's more an outcome after. There is a centrality that is somewhere else. And I think one of the reasons why we miss that is because when we are, when we respond to that call to follow, we end up just like the disciples. We encounter this God. We encounter this message. We have this, this transforming encounter. And maybe our initial efforts of going out and telling other people about the gospel, they're, they're like, it goes well. People respond and people affirm us and they see the change in our life. But pretty soon we're put in a position where Jesus says, now you give them something to eat. Now you feed this group. Now you enter into the suffering of this person who is in this position that seems incredible. And we look down and we go, you want me to feed how many? With what? You want, you want me to do what? For who? Don't you know I'm going to deserve it twice? Don't you? Jesus, don't you know how much I have a bank account? Jesus, haven't you looked at my calendar? Don't you know? Don't you know how much, how little free time I have? Jesus, don't you see the demands that I have on my life to do for all these things? And you want me to go do, go do what for who? With that? And so it's easy for us to retreat from that. It's easy for us then to defer or default to the gospel that's just about, hey, transactional, I believe this, these good things happen to me afterwards, later on. This story is about here and now, God. This story is about a right here and right now situation with us. We talk a lot in the teaching team about how harmful the cliche of, well, just trust God. God will provide when offered to someone who is suffering or someone who is hurting or someone who is in While well-intended, I get it. While well-intended as that can be, it also is a way of distancing yourself from the need of the person. Right? I encounter someone who has a significant need. I feel overwhelmed because I can't fix it. There's nothing that I can offer that is going to make it better. So I kind of lob this cliche over, hey, you just trust God. Hey, God will provide. Now, is that true? Hopefully. And I believe in a, in a very cool way it is. But what, I'm not using it that way. I, John Ray, am using that. I'm lobbing that over as a way for me to distance myself 
from that self. To distance myself from that. Instead of entering into that tension, that profoundly uncomfortable place of saying, of hearing God say to me, okay, y'all feel it. And looking down and going, I had a kid We also talk a lot about what, what if this miracle in the traditional way we've been taught to think about it, how many of y'all have seen a Jesus film at one point or another? Jesus Crusade came out with this evangelistic effort called the Jesus film. They, they took the, the gospel and they put it down and it, it's kind of campy now because it was done 30 or 40 years ago and the, the cinematography, but I'll never forget, it's really fascinating when they portrayed this scene. Is if you remember this, like they take it and Jesus looks up to heaven, presses it, and puts it in the basket, and then they start picking up the baskets and fish just start falling out. <laughs> like it, it's it's like there's a hose of fish <laughs> underneath the basket, and they just start spewing out of the basket. <laughs> it's 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 stuck in my mind. I've seen it in the film, um, and I think we have a kind of a tendency <clears throat> to think about this miraculously that that this was done. Well. There, there's a whole group of scholars out there that say that actually there was no miracle done as far as replication here, but what happened in the act of organizing, the act of blessing, the act of sharing, people started to realize, or people started to pull out of their personal stores, that the people who showed up and actually kind of packed the picnic, maybe they weren't expecting to be there too long, but they, they had something. And as they started to rub just through their bags and their backpacks and stuff and pulling stuff out, and someone said, hey, I got a little cheese here, I got a little fruit here. That the, as they fat, sat down in the 50s and the disciples walked around, and someone would say, hey, pass this on to the other group. And, and they would take the other group, and the other group would say, oh, we, now we have that. Here, pass this on to the other group. And they're really the multiplication came just from the people actually sharing out of what they did I struggle with that. I struggle with that because I think there is an element of the miraculous here, but I'm also not discounting that. And if I could propose to you, I think it might have been a little bit of a both and. And I propose it for this reason. In some of those earliest icons, mosaics, pictures of loaves and fishes, there were other things included. Sometimes there were pomegranates. Pomegranates are, a, are a, a motif of God's provision, of God's abundance. Um, sometimes there were other foods or flowers that were included in those things. Because I think this is this is what happens. Again, what does this mean to us? This is what happens, is that Understanding God's miraculous intervention into a situation, any situation what that is, changes us. It doesn't miracle of sort. It's the miracle of hope. It's the miracle of understanding. It's the miracle of provision. It's the miracle of understanding that I don't have to hold on to what I have. That I don't have to grasp. I don't have to control. I don't have to manipulate. I'm not talking about being irresponsible, necessarily. But what I am saying is that there has to be a transformation in us 
from a poverty mentality. As rich as we are, as a society, as a country, as a church, as rich as we are, we still all struggle with this poverty mentality. I have to get mine first. And if that is ever threatened, I will defend it by cutting off others. I'm as guilty of this as anybody. Maybe more so. And in some ways, it does take a miraculous change in me. It does take something inspired by the Holy Spirit to change my heart, to let go of that fear. To let go of that. And, and this most often happens when I see a miraculous something happen in someone else's life. When I see God restoring what I didn't think could be restored. Healing what I didn't think could be healed. Doing something that I didn't think could be done. And then that encouraged me to, to let go of that grasping with that. It's interesting when we consider that in the flow of the story of Luke, how the thing that proceeds the, or that comes right after this is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Lord. We talk a lot about, hey, especially in our society, but at least the one that I grew up in, we talk about apologetics, how we're going to let, lead people to believe through argument. We're going to present an, an apology or a case. We're going, to, we're going to argue a case why you should believe. We're going to tell you why it's logical for you to believe, why it's biblical for you to believe, why it's good for you to believe, whatever it is. We're going to argue that into you philosophically. <clears throat> Peter's confession comes after seeing very tangible flesh and blood provision. Not after the army, not a Christian. But after seeing a group of 5,000, which is representative of just a whole lot more people than they were capable of feeding. Okay, don't get hung up on the exact number. Just know that when they looked at it, it was an overwhelming crowd. Seeing Jesus enter into that not run away for it, invite them, and then they'll be conduits of God's will is what precipitated Peter's confession. Y'all, this is the other thing that I want us to see, is I think by doing this, this is how we get to know Jesus. By, by participating in this, this is how we get to know Jesus. You want your kids to know Jesus? Yeah, reading Bible stories. Yeah, dude. But but also participate practice this kind of obedience that is willing to go into a situation and hear the voice of God and say, Y'all feed him. Do we as a church, do we do we want to know Jesus collectively? Do we really want to know Jesus here? Then we're gonna have to respond to this. We're gonna have to be willing to put ourselves in positions. Where we walk into it, and we don't have the resources ourselves. It's not, it's not just following from a position of safety, but a position of risk, costly obedience, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer That we do this. We do this individually, we do this collectively, you know. I was thinking as I prepared this, um, I encountered this every Sunday. I didn't just encounter it in the mountains. 
Honduras like that one time, or many other times when we should feel like a filthy exact same thing. I, I feel this every Sunday. I, I feel like we get together for a teaching team meeting on Tuesday morning and we start talking about it, and then I think I'm going to have to fish you, right? Let's look at Cody, Matt, Jennifer, Beth, Emily, Kelly. It's like Jesus says, you feed them. You give them stuff. Y'all give them stuff. And I look at my own life right there. I got a can of soup. Maybe. I don't, I don't have what y'all need. I don't have it all together. I don't know it. There's not enough of me to go around here with that. But Jesus, Jesus says, no. Give him some. And then, and then I get done. And I go home and I take a nap. And I realize I'm going to do that again next week. <laughs> it's like the crazy thing about feeding kids, right? Is that you got to feed them again. You can't just feed them once. As a matter of fact, every time you feed them, they get a little bit bigger and they want a little bit more, right? Like, like they're increasing in that need for food. The more you feed them, the more they want. It's not a, it's not a one and done deal. It's an ongoing process. But y'all, this is how we get to know Jesus. This is how we really get to know Jesus, is by participating in this. And so, were the fish and the bread miraculously multiplied? Yes, but that wasn't the only miracle. That would even be the biggest miracle. I think the bigger miracle was the people responding, letting down their bed. Saying yes to being the provision that God was asking. And I asked the worship team to come back up. Practicing the hospitality here at Grace that invites belonging will put us in some very uncomfortable positions. We will be faced with what seem to be insurmountable needs, unfixable situations. But it's by leaning into and not running away from these situations and relationships that we will become more and more like Jesus as we know more and more about Jesus. We're gonna enter into this time with communion. Reflection offering. The offering box is out here. You can also give online. We do that as symbolic that nobody here is without something to give, and everybody here has a gift. So it's part of what you can share. It's also a time to reflect. Is there, is there maybe a place where Jesus has said to you, hey, you feed them, you give them something, and you've run away from that? You said, well, I, I can't do that. I'm not capable. I don't have the time. I'm not smart enough. Not spiritual enough, not rich enough. I don't have 
Jesus said, here, you feel it. Or write it down. Don't, don't let it, don't let it just be a thought and go out. Purpose to act on that now before you leave. And then finally, John Matthew will serve us communion. And our table is open to anyone seeking Jesus because Jesus is open to anyone seeking him. Take this as this reminder that there is, it's not just in us. This isn't going to come from us. This isn't another tripod to give up sermon. This isn't another one of those sermons that says, hey, here's another standard of perfection that you need to live up to that you'll never be able to achieve. That's not what this is. This is a reminder that the greatest miracle has already been done. That our efforts are responsive to those things. Everything we do is out of what has already been done. Done for us it will be done through us this is responding to that it's not sourced in us so that's why we take the communion as a reminder that it's God who has gone first it is God who is present in our doing it is God who is present in whatever healing and ministry it's not sourced in us so we take communion as a reminder thank you Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.